Welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on debunking the chemical imbalance theory of depression and raising questions about antidepressants. My name is Mark Horowitz, and I'm an honorary clinical research fellow in the Division of Psychiatry in the UCL Faculty of Brain Sciences, and I'll be chairing today's lecture. It's my honor to introduce today's speaker, Joanna Moncrief. She is a professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London and works as a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS in London. Researches and writes about the overuse and misrepresentation of psychiatric drugs and about the history, politics and philosophy of psychiatry more generally. She is the author of numerous papers and her books include Straight Talking, Introduction to Psychiatric Drugs, uh, in second edition, The Bitterest Pills, The Troubling Story of Antipsychotic Drugs, and The Myth of the Chemical Cure. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that there will be some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during Joanna's talk by going to the Slido uh, link. Uh, and entering the event code hashtag debunking. I will now hand over to Joanna for her talk. Thank you, Mark. Thank you everyone for coming. Can someone just shout and say that you can hear me okay? Yes. Yes, hear. thank you, brilliant, okay. Um, so yes, thank you very much for inviting me to talk. I'm going to talk to you about some research that Mark and I and some other colleagues did on uh, serotonin research and it's uh, the links between serotonin and depression and also about how this relates to my previous research and what it means for our understanding and uh, use of antidepressants and indeed um, whether it means we should be using them at all. So the context for this research was that there has been a massive increase in the use of antidepressants over the last few decades the uh, number of prescriptions in the UK has gone up almost four times since the late 1990s. We now have a situation where almost 20% of the population in England are prescribed an antidepressant. In the US, uh, over 20% are taking some sort of medication for a mental health problem, and much of, of uh, that is going to be antidepressants. And one of the reasons so many people have decided to take antidepressants is that people have been bombarded with this message that depression is due to an imbalance in the brain's neurotransmitters and particularly a deficiency of serotonin. And this message has come from the pharmaceutical industry, from drug companies making antidepressants, but also from medical institutions such as the American Psychiatric Association, and the UK's Royal College of Psychiatrists. So where did this idea that depression might be caused by a brain chemical imbalance or abnormality come from? Well, it started in the 1960s when uh, a few psychiatrists started to get interested in um, the possible chemical basis of depression and other mental health conditions. And the context for this was First of all, that there was great excitement about the drug treatment of mental health problems at this time um, because of the introduction of, uh, of a range of new tranquilizing drugs aimed at people with uh, diagnoses like schizophrenia. 
But the other part of the context is, of course, there was a burgeoning recreational drug scene in the 1960s. And this gets this gets started through the diversion of prescribed drugs such as amphetamines and barbiturates, uh, like the little purple heart you can see down there. And so the psychiatric profession are at this time feeling a need to distinguish what they do when they prescribe people uh, medication from what people are doing when they take recreational substances. And they come up with this, what is first called the monoamine hypothesis of, of depression. Serotonin is a monoamine and so is noradrenaline. And that hypothesis is, uh, um, is, is a hypothesis that, um, that the, the, the psychiatric profession are interested in and put um, research time into throughout the 70s and 80s, but the pharmaceutical industry are not terribly interested in these ideas because they are busy selling people benzodiazepines at this point. And then things change in the 1980s when it becomes apparent that benzodiazepines are uh, addictive substances, that they cause physical dependence and physical withdrawal syndromes, and there's a big outcry about this, particularly because so many people have prescribed them at this point in time. Uh, there's a, a Senate hearing led by Joe Kennedy in 1979 in the US to hear um, evidence about the benzodiazepine problem. And Betty Ford, the wife of Gerald Ford, US president, um, comes out very publicly about her own dependence on benzodiazepines and sets up a series of clinics to help people come off them. So this means that the market for benzodiazepines and actually for all anti-anxiety anti drugs collapses. And this is the context into which a new range of antidepressants are introduced in the late 1980s, starting with Prozac. Um, they very rapidly become best-selling drugs. Um, so Prozac is uh, on the front page of several leading magazines by 1990. It's voted drug of the year by Fortune magazine in 1990. And by 1994, it's the second highest selling drug in the US and in the whole world. And other um, SSRI type antidepressants follow suit. Now these drugs have to be differentiated from the benzodiazepines, which have got such a bad reputation by this time. And this is done by promoting this idea that depression is linked to a chemical imbalance. So this is when the pharmaceutical industry really come in and take up this, this theory, the monoamine theory, um, which they uh, promote as the serotonin theory, particularly in relation to the SSRI drugs. So, um, lots of uh, marketing material is produced, such as these pamphlets that were given to doctors to leave in um, patient waiting rooms, emphasizing that you're depressed, you don't have enough serotonin in your brain, then you um, take some uh, Prozac and the supply is replenished. Um, Cosmopolitan magazine ran, ran um, articles uh, talking about the chemical imbalance and, and the wonders of Prozac. And then by um, by the early noughties, there are lots of television advertisements for these drugs which promote the same idea because there's a, um, there's a lift on the ban, um, on the previous ban of direct-to-consumer advertising in the United States. So this is one famous advertisement which features a, a sad blob, um, explains to you how... Um, I've lost my slides. Can you still see my slides? 
explains to people um, how depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals in the brain and how Zoloft uh, works to correct this. <clears throat> this is prefaced by someone saying, although the cause is unknown, but they say it very quickly so that most people wouldn't even catch it. And um, these pharma uh, pharmaceutical marketing efforts are accompanied by um, depression awareness campaigns that are run by pharmaceutical companies, sorry, that are, that are run by uh, medical organizations such as the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. Um, they started this campaign to emphasize how depression is common, serious and treatable in the late 1980s. In the UK, the Royal College of Psychiatrists and General Practitioners teamed up to mount what was called the Defeat Depression Campaign. This received funding from Eli Lilly and some other drug companies. And they commissioned some market research at the beginning of their campaign, which revealed that most people at that time thought the depression was caused by divorce, unemployment and other social problems and not by biochemical or other biological abnormalities. And most people in, their, in the, the groups that they talked to thought that drug treatment for depression was potentially addictive and dulled symptoms rather than solving problems. And the campaign basically set out to change this, to change people's minds, to convince people that drug treatment was um, a good solution, that it didn't, um, it wasn't associated with dependence, um, and that more people should be offered it. These efforts were very successful and the prescriptions of antidepressants increased uh, three times over the 1990s. And uh, despite the fact that some leading psychiatrists came out uh, in the middle of the noughties and admitted that actually there was no uh, evidence to support the serotonin theory of depression, or the chemical imbalance theory more generally. People went on believing it because this didn't get much coverage and the pharmaceutical industry was still pumping this idea out into the ether um, supported by medical organizations. So public surveys revealed that people, there were still very high rates of people endorsing um, the idea, believing that, that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. So that was really <clears throat> my motivation for conducting a systematic review of the serotonin research. So in around 2019, I got Mark and a group of other colleagues together to look at all the main areas that have, um, uh, that, that, that have uh, in which research on, um, on serotonin and depression has been conducted. And we conducted what's known as a systematic umbrella review. So what we did is we searched for systematic reviews that had been done in each of these different areas. <clears throat> so we looked at serotonin levels in body fluids, um, the levels of the serotonin metabolite in the cerebrospinal fluid, that's the fluid that surrounds the brain and the nervous system. We looked at research on serotonin receptors, the serotonin transporter protein, that's the protein that takes serotonin out of the synapse where it has its um, action and that's the protein that is affected by SSRI antidepressants. <clears throat> we looked at these um, studies called tryptophan depletion studies. These are studies in which people are given um, a drink of uh, a mixture of amino acids, which lacks the amino acid that is the precursor for serotonin. 
and this basically sucks all the um, that precursor substance out of the brain uh, and uh, and can be shown to reduce to uh, reduce serotonin levels within hours of, of people taking the drink. Uh, and the hypothesis was that giving people this drink would induce depressive symptoms in people who were not already depressed. And then we also looked at the uh, genetic studies looking at the gene for the serotonin transporter and interactions between the gene and stressful life events. We found 17 studies, meta-analyses and systematic reviews, um, and these involved almost 6,000 people in the non-genetic studies and over 100,000 people in the genetic studies, some of which were very large. And basically, these are our conclusions. We found no evidence that depression is associated with lower serotonin concentrations or activity. There was a little bit of evidence from some studies in some areas that may, it may even be associated with higher serotonin levels, but the evidence was inconsistent. Different areas were showing up in different studies and the results, and that therefore you, you think that the results might be false positives or due to the consequences of antidepressant use because most of these studies involved mainly people who were taking antidepressants. There was some evidence that taking antidepressants seems to be associated with lowered serotonin um, rather than increased serotonin, um, but, but uh, that's um, has to remain a, a provisional finding. And the genetic studies were very convincingly negative. They were very large and some of them were very high quality. And not only did they not show any effect of the serotonin gene or any interaction between the gene and stressful life events, they also showed a very strong association between depression and stressful life events on their own. <clears throat> now, since we um, published that paper, another study was published that claimed to find the first direct evidence of a link between low serotonin and depression. And this received a lot of media coverage it, the, the technique they used was far from direct. What they did was they gave amphetamines to volunteers. Amphetamines release a number of um, neurotransmitters, including serotonin, but also noradrenaline and um, dopamine. Um, and what they did is they measured the changes in a radioactive tracer that binds to one of the serotonin receptors. And they hypothesized that changes in the radio tracer may reflect changes in serotonin brain concentrations. And they, their hy hypothesis for this was based on a study of pigs where, some, where, where people correlated the changes in the, um, uh, in the uh, radio tracer with the actual changes in levels of serotonin in the brain. But it's difficult to do research on pigs. They're, they're mammals, you can't involve lots of pigs actually only two pigs were involved in this particular finding. And so no statistical um, measures could even be, even be done in that study. In any case, the findings are extremely unconvincing. It only involves 17 people, five of whom had Parkinson's disease as well as depression. And we know that Parkinson's disease reduces levels of serotonin in the brain as well as other neurotransmitters. And the results were only actually statistically significant after they'd excluded one outlier and used a one-sided p-test, which is not, um, which is a, a sort of statistical test that's not generally recommended. And then you can see from the graph on the right 
that actually even those results were not robust to the exclusion of further outliers. Um, if you take away the, um, the, the, the circled dots, you can see that the, re the remaining dots actually overlap and there's really no difference at all. So what are the implications for understanding antidepressants of the fact that there does not seem to be any evidence for a link between serotonin and depression. <clears throat> so we cannot say therefore that antidepressants are reversing an underlying brain abnormality <clears throat> or targeting an underlying biological mechanism that produces depression or the symptoms of depression. There may well be other biological mechanisms apart from serotonin and of course there are numerous theories about these but they have not been established either. And therefore we have to consider other possible ways that antidepressants might be having their effects. And these other ways have very different implications for deciding whether antidepressants are useful and thinking about how they might be harmful. And this is where we come on to uh, research that I've done in the past on what I've called models of drug action. So this is different ways of understanding the ways in which the mechanisms by which drugs may affect people um, who have mental health problems. So the model, the, the, the way that drugs are usually assumed to work by most psychiatrists and presented as working or assumed um, or presented as assumed to be working in research is what I've called the disease-centered model. This is the idea that drugs work by correcting an underlying abnormality of the brain, whether that's a chemical imbalance or an abnormality of neural connectivity or networks or anything else. Uh, and the therapeutic effects arise because of the drug's effects on the biological mechanisms that produce the symptoms of the disorder. And this is indeed how most drugs can be correctly understood to work in the rest of medicine. So drugs like um, uh, your asthma treatment, your inhaler for asthma, um, doesn't treat the cause of asthma. Lots of medical drugs don't treat the cause of the condition, but nevertheless, it acts on the mechanisms that produce the symptoms of wheezing. It relaxes the constricted airways that are producing the, the wheezing. But there's another way that drugs may be working when we think about um, the drugs that we use for mental health problems. And so the drug-centered model um, is, is this alternative way. And the drug-centered model suggests that drugs work by actually changing the normal state of the brain and indeed of the body. And that the resulting changes in the, that the, the changes in the brain result in changes in mental activity, which are temporarily superimposed on underlying thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that we call symptoms. And an example of this might be the way that the the changes induced by alcohol, the mental changes induced by alcohol, can temporarily override people's underlying feelings of anxiety or depression. So the drug-centered model really emphasizes that the drugs that we prescribe for mental health problems are what we might call psychoactive drugs. And I'm using that, that term to mean any drug that crosses the blood-brain barrier changes the normal state of the brain and therefore produces changes in sensations, mental activity and behavior. 
And of course, all drugs affect the rest of the body and physical functioning in ways as well. Now, these changes that psychoactive drugs produce can be either pleasant or unpleasant. And we're most familiar with using this term in relation to recreational drugs, such as alcohol and illicit substances, where by definition, the changes they produce are experienced as pleasant for at least some people. But some drugs produce chain mental and physical alterations that are generally experienced as being unpleasant, particularly antipsychotics, for example, that are found to be very unpleasant when taken by um, volunteers, for example. Um, but they are nevertheless a psychoactive drug that profoundly changes the normal um, state and functioning of the brain and the and normal mental activity. And as I was saying uh, before in the last slide, these changes can temporarily override um, underlying feelings of mental distress. They also often cause dependence and withdrawal because the brain changes to try and counteract the effects of the drug and they can have predictable and unpredictable harmful effects. Now, the disease-centered way of understanding drug action has become dominant, but it wasn't always so. Prior to the 1950s, drugs were actually understood as working according to a drug-centered model. And you can see this from the way that they were named and classified. So prior to the 1950s, they are classified according to the sorts of alterations they produce. So they're classified either as sedatives or stimulants. But from the 1950s onwards, they start to be named and classified according to the sort of disease they are thought to treat. And we then start to talk of antipsychotics and antidepressants, etc. So for example, uh, this uh, drug called Melaril was described as a tranquilizer in 1960 and is purely, um, clearly being promoted for these sorts of effects. But by 1970, the same drug is being described as an antipsychotic and a drug that strikes promptly at target symptoms. The same sort of thing happens with antidepressants. The first drugs that are proposed to have antidepressant action are actually stimulant type drugs and uh, their stimulant profile is, is recognized, but gradually they start to be um, talked of as having specific effects. They start to be spoken of as having specific effects against depressive symptoms. And gradually through the 1960s and 70s, the drug, the, the disease-centered model of drug action is adopted. What causes this change? Well, it's not caused because, uh, because of lots of compelling scientific evidence. The main evidence we have about the effects of psychiatric drugs comes from placebo-controlled trials, which do not distinguish um, whether a drug is acting in a disease-centered or a drug-centered way. And there is little other evidence. I haven't got time to go in it today, but I've into it today, but I've covered the evidence, the possible evidence that might support a disease-centered model and how it doesn't stack up in detail in other publications. And basically, unless we have good evidence that the disease-centered model is correct, we should assume that the drug-centered model is the way that drugs are working. Uh, because we know that the drugs that we give for mental health problems are psychoactive effects, are psychoactive drugs. We know that they are causing mental alterations. And until we have 
discounted those, we can't assume that they are doing anything else. Back in the 1960s, people did have doubts about the um, disease-centered model in relation to antidepressants. Um, the, uh, these are three psychopharmacologists, two of which were very well known, conducted a lot of research and very highly respected. And they were very doubtful whether any drugs actually had specific antidepressant effects. So they wrote this paper called Antidepressant Drugs, Myth or Reality. And this was because there were already at that time many trials showing that lots of drugs that weren't supposedly antidepressants had the same sort of effects as antidepressants in people with depression, including many types of drugs that we call antipsychotics, including purple hearts, which were this mixture of amphetamine and barbiturates, including stimulants on their own, including barbiturates on their own, benzodiazepines, etc. So um, I hope I've convinced you that um, the disease-centered model of antidepressant action is, is um, not a reasonable way to explain the action of antidepressants. And I want to think about what the drug-centered approach means for our understanding and use of antidepressants. So taking a drug-centered approach means that first of all, we need to understand the sort of physical and mental alterations that antidepressants produce. And secondly, when we have a really good comprehensive understanding of those, we can start to ask whether these might be helpful in people with depression. And the first thing to say is that we really know very little about the sort of alterations produced by antidepressants because the disease-centered model of drug action has become so dominant. This idea that they that, that the only thing that's important about them is that they are reversing some underlying abnormality in serotonin or noradrenaline or something. Um, because that idea has been so prevalent, all the research has gone into looking at their effect on, for example, different sorts of serotonin receptors, and no one has thought to ask the question, how do they actually change people? What do they do? What does it feel like to take them? Uh, and what does it feel like to keep taking them day in, day out, week in, week out, for the sorts of periods that many people take them nowadays? Some things that are important to point out are that antidepressants come from many different chemical classes. So they have many different sorts of uh, effects. Some have quite subtle effects that, that are not really very noticeable, at least at first. Some have more obvious effects, so um, particularly the older sort of tricyclic antidepressants were really quite sedative, quite similar to the, um, uh, to the old antipsychotics. Many antidepressants produce lethargy, tiredness of one sort or another, weight gain, some produce insomnia, some produce a syndrome of irritability, tension and emotional lability, um, which, uh, and these effects especially seem to happen in young people and may be related to uh, a small increased risk of suicidal behavior that is seen in young people in particular. They're generally not experienced as being pleasant to take. Volunteers describe them as being mildly unpleasant. Um, and most of them seem to have this property of causing emotional blunting. Um, one participant in one study described this effect as feeling distant from life. And this emotional blunting may also be related to a common effect that they have, common and well-recognized, um, the effect that they produce sexual dysfunction. 
Now, the, uh, some people have suggested that the emotional blunting that is produced by antidepressants is not produced by antidepressants. It's actually a feature of the underlying depression. And of course, this is a, a slightly difficult thing to tease out because some people with depression can feel emotionally blunted. But many, many people on antidepressants describe feeling emotionally blunted, even though they might feel very positive about their antidepressant um, and feel that it's been helpful for them. And, and the, the descriptions of it are very consistent. But this research really confirmed that this is an antidepressant related effect. This was research that was done with volunteers that showed that there's some emotional blunting effect that can be detected in volunteers who are taking um, antidepressants who don't have depression. So if we're taking a drug-centered approach, we need to ask, do these alterations, whether it's the emotional blunting or the lethargy that people experience, um, reduce depression scores? Um, and do they um, reduce them directly or might they be reducing them indirectly because, uh, because these effects may, um, may, may enable people in randomized trials to guess whether they're taking the real drug or the placebo and then lead to unblinding and um, pl amplified placebo effects. So one of the most common responses when the serotonin paper was published was psychiatrists and other people in the media saying, but don't worry, antidepressants work. And uh, this is also a headline in a, in a newspaper from 2018 suggesting the same thing. Now, when people make this claim, they are basing this claim on all the placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants, all the hundreds um, and hundreds of these trials that have been done over the last few decades, mainly funded by the pharmaceutical industry. What do these trials find? Well, if you put them all together in a meta-analysis, what you find is that on average, an antidepressant reduces your depression scores on a depression rating scale, such as the commonly used Hamilton depression rating scale, by about two points. That is a very small reduction. Um, as you can see in this graph here, the blue column is the um, score of the people on antidepressants, the orange column is the score of people on placebo at the end of a study, the grey column is the average or typical baseline scores that people show um, when going into a trial, and the yellow column is the maximum score that you can get on this depression rating scale. So a two-point difference is very little in relation to people's baseline scores and the maximum scores. In and, and it doesn't look, how, however you try and judge whether this difference is actually clinically meaningful, it doesn't look as if it reaches the threshold for, um, for having a, a real world effect. This is one way of looking at whether the score has, um, is clinically meaningful. Um, people have compared changes in the Hamilton scale, the Hamilton depression score with ratings on something called the clinical global improvement score. And you need, and um, if you if your change in a Hamilton score is three or less, you don't register as showing any change on the clinical global improvement score. You need to show a difference of at least eight points on the Hamilton score to to be rated as being minim, minimally improved on this global rating score. In any case, 
it looks as if that small difference is probably not a real pharmacological difference because as I said earlier, the sorts of alterations that antidepressants produce enable many people in many trials, not all, but many trials to guess accurately whether they have taken an, whether they are getting the antidepressant or the placebo. And seeing as many people who go into these trials go into them because they think that a drug treatment will be helpful for them and they are hopeful of being allocated to the real drug if they think that they've got onto it because they're getting some noticeable um, effects and side effects, they are likely to have an enhanced placebo response. Um, in this uh, study of people with alcohol problems, 80% of the people who were allocated to take the um, SSRI in this study correctly identified what they were taking. Um, so that's much higher than the 50% you would get by chance. Now, this study is an interesting study. This was a negative antidepressant trial that compared the SSRI sertraline with St. John's wort or hypericum and placebo. And the results on the left show you the, the results according to the drugs that people were actually on. And you can see that the difference between the placebo in gray and the sertraline in blue is about one point or even a little bit less than one point on the um, Hamilton rating scale. That was not statistically significant, um, so could have occurred by chance. But you can see on the right the analysis that is done according to the drug that people guessed they were taking. And then you can see that there's a very big difference between the um, depression ratings of people who were taking, who thought they were taking the two drugs and the people who thought they were taking the placebo. And the difference is five to six points um, and was statistically significant. So this just highlights how people's beliefs about what they are taking um, substantially affects their levels of improvement and their outcome ratings in randomized trials. There is even less evidence for long-term treatment. Most antidepressant um, trials last less than eight weeks long. And the only evidence we really have for long-term treatment comes from relapse prevention studies. These are studies that take people who are already established on an antidepressant and randomize half of them to go onto a placebo. But now we are well aware that coming off antidepressants can provoke withdrawal effects and withdrawal effects overlap with the symptoms of relapse and mean that you, we can't be confident that people transferred to placebo are actually experiencing relapse and not just having withdrawal effects. You can see this um, withdrawal effect clearly in this uh, study, which is actually of esketamine. What you can see in this is that the people who were taking an antidepressant who are in the red um, uh, are thought of as having relapse, um, as having relapsed, um, uh, uh, and, and many more of them relapse soon after the point of randomization. So the proportion that are well uh, comes down quite rapidly, whereas in the people who remain on esketamine, they have more constant, a more constant rate of relapse. Um, and other evidence on long-term outcomes is also not promising. So generally people who take antidepressants and who are followed up in non-randomized studies do worse than people who do not take them. That might well be because they've got more depression to, uh, 
more depression to begin with, more severe depression to begin with. Um, but some of these studies have controlled for that to some extent and still find that people are doing worse. There was one, um, there's, there's been a very large long-term, relatively long-term study of the outcomes of antidepressant treatment called the STAR-D study that was conducted in the United States, involved 4,000 people who were given gold standard antidepressant treatment. It consisted of three months of one antidepressant, and then people were switched to another antidepressant or to combination treatment or to therapy, uh, and then switched again if they didn't get better. So it was a stepped treatment program. At the end of that, the number who stayed well, who stayed in the trial, didn't drop out. And remember, these, uh, these people are getting gold standard treatment and being offered, being offered their treatment for free, uh, which is quite significant in the United States. Um, the number of people who stayed in got better and didn't relapse out of 4,000 people was only just over 100 people. So the rate of actually getting better and staying better on gold standard antidepressant treatment was very low indeed. What about antidepressant adverse effects? And I will be finishing soon if um, the organizers are getting um, uh, nervy because I'd like to have some questions. But uh, it's just very important to highlight some of the adverse effects of antidepressants. Uh, some will be well known, but adverse effects that have really come out more clearly recently are the fact that antidepressants cause physical dependence and that uh, the withdrawal syndrome can be extremely severe and debilitating and prolonged for some people, not for everyone, but for some people. It's very well known that antidepressants cause sexual dysfunction. There is emerging evidence that has been published in the sexual health literature, mainly as, as well as some other places, that some people experience sexual dysfunction that persists after they stop taking antidepressants. And there is animal research as well suggesting that, uh, that this can happen. Uh, so these are obviously very um, worrying effects that, that may be quite common. And there are some other rare but, but serious effects. So my conclusions on antidepressants really are that there's no evidence that antidepressants correct an underlying biological abnormality. However, they do alter normal brain chemistry and normal brain functioning in ways that we do not fully understand because we haven't researched it thoroughly. The drug-induced effects that they produce include dampening of emotions, but there's no evidence to suggest that uh, this effect or any of their other effects has benefits on depressive symptoms that are clinically meaningful and likely to be attributable to a real pharmacological effect. Evidence for any long-term benefits is lacking and adverse effects can be persistent, severe and debilitating. And there are also psychological uh, negative effects to, to bear in mind, um, such as such as the possibility that being emotionally blunted or being in an altered state may hinder other approaches um, to, to depression, such as therapy. So how on earth has this happened? How have we ended up in a position where millions and millions of people around the world are taking drugs that um, have, none, have, have no benefits or barely any benefits, and yet do have some concerning adverse effects. I think this is down to a combination of the efforts of the pharmaceutical industry, um, the uh, allied efforts of the psychiatric profession, 
and the interaction of these with the insecurity and desperation that so many people feel in the modern world, such that people are desperate to find some, some um, pharmaceutical sort of solution for the pain, emotional pain that they feel. And what of the future? I'm afraid that we're going to have more of the same and possibly some of it's going to be worse. Uh, there the new, new fashionable treatments for depression include psychedelics, uh, ketamine and esketamine. Um, when they were first being proposed, they were being proposed in a slightly different way. The idea of psychedelics was that you would um, have a psychedelic experience and then process that with a therapist and that would be a learning experience to enable people to um, then, then cope better with trauma or depression or whatever it was. But increasingly, these treatments are actually just being giving, given regularly and long-term to people. And esketamine is a preparation that, like antidepressants, is designed to be given on a long-term basis. Um, and also, very worryingly, there are opioid drugs being developed for depression. One's even being licensed now in the United States. Their use is being justified. Um, by the idea that depression might be due to some abnormality of opioid regulation and new benzodiazepine-like drugs are also being um, released and licensed, uh, this time on the um, speculation that de depression might be due to some abnormality of GABA, um, another brain chemical that benzodiazepines affect. So please beware for more of these misleading and unsubstantiated messages. And I'd be very happy to take questions. Thank, thanks very much, Joanna. Uh, a very wide ranging talk. Uh, I'm just gonna go to the list of questions. Um, so the, the, there's, a, there's a number of questions here. I'll start with the ones that are most popular. So uh, the big question, uh, and the question is, if a chemical imbalance does not cause depression, how should we best understand what does cause depression? So I think, I think we need to get away from the idea that depression is the result of a brain abnormality or some other sort of biological abnormality. And I think we need to understand depression as an emotional reaction to life circumstances. It may be a more extreme one than, than is usual. Oops. And of course, some people, you know, people differ in their um, proclivity to experience strong emotions. So some people will react more strongly to circumstances than, than other people will. Um, but, but I think we need to understand depression as uh, an understandable reaction to circumstances. It might not always be, be easy to um, identify what the circumstances are. Sometimes it's not clear to people. Um, uh, we, um, Mark and I know um, uh, a doctor who's been quite public about her own experience of very severe depression. And she, she went through the whole gamut of different sorts of depression treatments, antidepressants, ECT, uh, and even, even had a frontal 
leukotomy. Um, and then basically realized years later that she was reacting to uh, a, a very stressful situation that she had been in the time at the time with young children trying to progress her medical deg degree, a medical career while she had young children, and that experiences in her childhood had made her particularly vulnerable to experience depression. But she didn't really realize that until years later. Um, so I think that's important to realize. There is a lot of research that depression um, follows adverse life events that people who experience adverse life events, uh, stressful upbringings, trauma, abuse, these sorts of things are more likely to experience depression. Um, that that uh, the, the genetic studies we looked at showed that very clearly. And there's lots of other research that shows that. Um, so that's how I think we should understand depression. That's how people used to understand depression back in the 1980s before the pharmaceutical industry changed our minds about it. I often think that the explanation that my grandmother would have given for depression is probably the most accurate one, which is, you know, when, when bad things happen in your life, it makes you feel awful. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and negative emotions like depression and anxiety are, are a signal that things are not going well. And I think that's, uh, you know, a different sort of way of approaching depression is to see it as a signal that is indicating something needs to be changed um, and, and you know that some work needs to be done to identify what that is and, and how it needs to be changed and, and one of the problems one of the many problems in um, in presenting this idea that it's just a biological condition or that it's partly a biological condition is that uh, is that we lose that that understanding of emotions as a as an indicator of um, how we are experiencing our life circumstances. So you've, you've touched on this a little bit in your talk, but um, one of the questions here is, what has been the response to the review by the public and professionals? So, so the public seemed to be um, universally really shocked to hear that there was no evidence for a link between serotonin and depression. Um, in some ways that didn't surprise me because we had done the research because I was aware um, of how widely believed that was. Um, I remember going and doing a seminar for the German department at UCL about five or six years ago, for example. And um, this, was, this was a seminar given to academics in, in the department. And, they were all completely shocked to hear that the chemical imbalance theory of depression was just a theory that it hadn't been substantiated. So I thought, well, you know, if you've got highly educated academics believing that, that probably means that most of the population um, believe that, that it is substantiated too. So in some ways it, it wasn't a surprise, but, but clearly people were, were really shocked. And clearly many people felt that they had therefore started on antidepressants on false premises and uh, under false beliefs um, and, and, and were very upset about that. So I wrote a, a blog soon after we published the paper to, to, to give advice to people who found themselves in that situation. The response from um, professionals and from some sections of the media was very different. They all said, 
this is not important. It doesn't matter. Antidepressants work and it doesn't matter how they work. Uh, and that's why, um, that's why I wanted to highlight in this lecture that I think it's, it's very important how they work. It's very important what to understand what they are actually doing. Um, because as, as members of the public intuitively, immediately realized, it profoundly influences how you see the activity of taking a, a, a drug. So, you know, if you think that you have um, a chemical imbalance in your brain and that this drug is going to put it right, of course it makes sense to take it, all other things being equal. If you are told that actually we've got no evidence that there's anything wrong with your brain, then taking a drug that is going to modify your brain in some way, especially if you're given the information that we don't really know how, um, is, is a very different prospect. Um, and it, you know, even if you're told that that drug may numb your emotions a bit, and obviously when people are feeling intensely emotional and really desperate, that may be appealing in some ways. Um, but, but I think if, um, but I think many people would feel if that is all the drug is doing and there's nothing actually wrong with my brain, then I don't need to take it. Uh, and sorry, and coming on to, yeah, so, so, the, so the response, so, so, lo so lots of um, psychiatrists said it's not important, it doesn't matter how um, antidepressants work, um, but they work, and they said that over and over again, and then they, uh, some of them came up with other possible um, ideas for how depression may have um, a biological basis. So people have um, are now, are now um, promoting this idea that depression might be to do, to do with abnormal neurogenesis, um, that, that is abnormal um, or a deficiency of uh, the brain's possible ability to generate new, new, new neurons or neuronal connections. Um, uh, that's been been touted a lot. Um, some people have suggested that that uh, depression might be due to other brain chemical abnormalities. Many people have said serotonin is important, but it's involved it's involved in all these complicated ways um, with lots of other other processes. So it's not just a simple um, deficiency or um, or abnormality of serotonin that you could measure. And basically. All these possibilities could be right, but none of them are substantiated um, by any convincing research either. And it feels like to me that, that there are people who just want, want the public to believe that depression is biological in some way, even though that hasn't been substantiated, because that gives this nice disease-centered justification for using antidepressants and might stop people from um, from asking too many questions about what antidepressants actually do. There's probably time for one more question. Um, and so it's a, another, another large question. Uh, question is, what are the alternatives for psychiatric treatment? What should psychiatry focus on? Maybe that we've talked about depression, maybe just to focusing uh, on uh, what are other ways potentially of treating depression if we don't use antidepressants? Yeah, um, so I, I think 
I think the most important thing is that if you stop thinking of depression as a biological brain condition and you start thinking of it as an emotional reaction, you then realize that there can't be a single treatment for depression. That doesn't make sense. What you have is a lot of people in different individual circumstances who need to find different solutions. Um, and so, so the job of clinicians is to help the individual to identify what's causing their depression and what they can do about it. And sometimes that might involve uh, some form of therapy to uh, look at how people um, how people have reacted to things that have happened in their past and how they are responding to, to current events in their lives. But sometimes it might involve much more practical things like support with a work dispute or benefits applications or housing problems um, or relationship counselling or whatever, whatever it is that addresses the individual's particular problems. But I think uh, the, the important thing is that, that, that you, you know, if, if, if we get away from this idea of depression as a medical disease, then we need to get away from the idea that there is a single treatment. That's a sort of misleading idea in itself. Okay, I'll, I'll put one more question to you. Uh, and it's a question that a lot of people have after learning more about antidepressants. And one person has put it um, like this, what do I do? if I am a long-term user of SSRI medication and have a history of recurrent depression, will I ever be able to come and stay off antidepressants? So if you've been on antidepressants for a long period of time, there is evidence that uh, getting off them will be more difficult than if you've been on them for just a short period of time. You may experience more severe withdrawal symptoms that might go on for longer. Um, and so you need to, if you want to try and come off your antidepressant, you need to do it slowly and carefully, tapering down as uh, Mark has shown in all his work, um, particularly slowly when you get down to the lower doses in a, what's called a hyperbolic fashion, um, to try and minimize the uh, withdrawal symptoms that you get. Um, I, but I think to start with, for someone who is on antidepressants and still depressed, you need to have a, a really good think and discussion with various people about whether it is worthwhile staying on the antidepressants. What Are they doing anything for you or, or not? Or might they actually be, um, be bringing some further negative complications into your life? Um, and, uh, and, and if you do decide to, you know, if, if you decide that they're not worthwhile, then as I say, to, to follow this, this slow program. And then it's about trying to find other ways to manage your, your low mood. Um, although it may be that there is, there are some people who think, I'm not sure I'm one of those that's totally convinced, there are some people who think that long-term antidepressants can make people more depressed. Um, so it may be uh, that, that when you get off the antidepressants, you might even feel a bit better. But, but I think the main, the main message is re really have a, have a good, deep think about it, discuss it with other people, discuss it with your doctor. And if you do decide that you want to come off the medication, do it slowly and carefully and have a, and have a plan for, for, for how else you're going to try and, um, and deal with your mood. All right. Just left me to say thank you very much for everyone's great questions. I'm sure I didn't get to all of them, um, but I, I hope I got to the, the most popular ones. 
Uh, I'll point out that the next uh, UCL lunch hour lecture is uh, on the 23rd of May. It's on social justice and health equity with Sir Michael Marmot. Uh, otherwise, thank you very much to Joanna and thanks to the organizing committee and I wish you a good afternoon. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.